Would you pray with me as well? Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word that never changes. Thank you for your strength and your leading that always guide us directly and rightly. I pray, Lord, open my heart so that I hear your wisdom. Open our hearts so that we receive your wisdom. Open your word up to us, Lord, and fill us all with your Holy Spirit. We give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. In my mind, there's a fundamental difference between knowledge and wisdom. Now, they're related, but they're not the same thing. I've known really smart people uh, who have gone through and gotten their doctorates who are not particularly wise, pretty foolish in their, in their everyday life. I've known really wise people that have never gone to college, haven't learned math and science and languages and things, but they're incredibly wise at applying what they know. We tend to lump knowledge and wisdom together, kind of like we tend to lump um, feeling with our hearts together with discerning with our spirits, as if those are the same things. And they're not. There's, there's overlaps between a lot of these, but they're not the same things. Um, and I don't ever want to simplify things to the point where, where we remove the meaning behind things. We forget what they really mean. To my mind, when you're talking about knowledge, um, Knowledge is, is, is the stuff that you know. It's the, it's the what of knowing things. When you're talking about intelligence, it's knowing stuff goodishly, right? It's, it's, it's knowing a lot of stuff and knowing it with good, goodliness. It's the how of knowing things. When you're talking about wisdom, you're talking about knowing what you should do with the stuff that you know knowing the best way to apply because you understand the knowledge. It's the why of knowing things. And you need to have a what, you need to have a how, and you need to have a why if you really want to do this. Terrifyingly, Solomon knew a lot of stuff. He knew a lot of stuff goodlyishly, and he knew what he was supposed to do with it. But it's terrifying because he didn't do it. I mean, he eventually circled back around to different things, but he knew what he should be doing, and he still felt empty, and he still felt unfulfilled with life because he didn't do this stuff. He kept doing all these other things to try to find meaning, to try to see if he could just test and make sure that the grass wasn't really greener on the other side. The grass is never greener on the other side. You always think maybe it is, but even if you go, ha-ha, this patch is, oh, wait, there's poison ivy here now. It's like... It's never just better to try something where you're not supposed to be and to do things other than what you're supposed to be doing. Chuck Swindoll, uh, being much more pastoral and far more eloquent than I am, defined wisdom this way. It's the God-given ability to see life with rare objectivity and to handle life with rare stability. It's this even keel that, that comes from not only knowing stuff and knowing how to know stuff, but knowing why this stuff is important. And I think it's important because it is rare. It's rare for people to live with that kind of objectivity and that kind of stability. How much of your life do you feel, maybe you go, no, I'm pretty cool, but how much of your life do you feel like you're just like, you're flailing out of control in this area of life, or I don't know what to do over here, or my emotions are just surging. Emotions aren't bad, they're good, they're supposed to point you in motivate you, but you can't be overwhelmed by them. 
careful anyway he's right in calling it rare. Because even when we say people like Solomon have wisdom, it doesn't mean that he always acts in it. It doesn't mean he always follows even what he knows he should do. He can struggle still to make himself do the things that he knows God is calling him to. And that's why later on in his life he came to realize, or to admit really, because he already knew it, from Proverbs 15 he says, Better is a little with the fear of Yahweh than great wealth with turmoil. I would rather have really very little and have a good relationship with God than to have all the money in the world and to live in a constant state of flux. And yet, even if we all go, yep, absolutely, yep, yep, yep. You ever get stressed over finances? He just got finished saying, I would rather have very little but be right with God than to stress over finances. And we all go, exactly. Do you ever stress over finances? All the time. Like, well, there's what you know, there's what you know goodly, there's what you know about what you should do, and then there's what you actually do with what you should do, right? He says, yeah, I, I, I want to make sure I do this right. In fact, he says later on in the same chapter, the fear of Yahweh teaches a man wisdom. That very appreciation of Yahweh. I mean, when I say fear, I don't mean be afraid, like you should run away from God and hide. He's saying the exact opposite. He's like, you should have this sense that God is so awe-inspiringly good. He's so so intensely perfect. He's so much smarter, bigger, better, wiser than us. I should, I should, when I think of God, I should be in awe. And that should make me run to him because I realize there is no hiding from a God like that. In fact, that's where I should be receiving the wisdom that I should be living by. So the fear of God, the sense of the awe-inspiringness of him should draw me to him. In fact, in the same chapter, Solomon says that the truth is, he who ignores discipline from wisdom, I don't care whether it's your father or your king or your God, if you have some wise wisdom and you ignore discipline, he who ignores discipline despises himself. Whoever heeds correction gains understanding. If you remember our other favorite preacher from the New Testament in Hebrews said, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I don't care whether you're talking about self-discipline, where I don't eat all the cookies, or you're talking about discipline where I say, that's it, you're grounded until you figure this out. The concept of discipline is to say you don't get the thing you wanted if what you wanted is unhealthy, right? Healthy discipline is there to try to get you to do the healthy thing, right? the thing that's good for you. Yes? So if you go, yeah, I know, I just totally don't like it because I didn't get what I wanted. You know, then you hate yourself. You know, no, I love myself. I want what I want, you know, even if it's self-destructive. I want what I want when I want it, even if it destroys myself because I'm more interested in feeling good than I am in being healthy and whole, and keep going. Every heroin addict hates themselves in comparison with how much they love the high. I will destroy every other part of my life if I get this high. I'll watch my marriage burn. I'll watch my career fall apart. I'll watch my body fall apart 
if it means I can get more crack, if I can get more whatever it is. I despise myself compared to how much I love the high. He says, yeah, that's the way it is with discipline. Any good discipline is a course correction. If you go, but I like my self-destructive course. Solomon says, but God doesn't. And you shouldn't. It is destroying you. And God loves you more than you love you. So maybe listen to the wise God instead of the addiction that's leading you in the wrong direction. Follow the right course, the healthy course, the best course for you. Because ignoring this course correction means you don't care about you. That's very bad for you. You don't want to do that. Anyway, I thought, given how he's looking at wisdom at the end of his life here, it might be good as we finish up our quick look at Ecclesiastes to just let the preacher preach for a sec. Take a couple of portions out and just say, what are some of the snippets of wisdom that the preacher gives us here in Ecclesiastes? These little course corrections. But we just have to remind ourselves. There's what you... There's what you know. There's what you know actually goodlyishly. There's what you know about what you should be doing with what you know. And there's what you actually end up doing with it, right? So I can preach, the preacher can preach till we're blue in the face and if everybody goes, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Any recovering alcoholic, any recovering heroin addict, any recovering smoker will tell you this only works if I stop smoking, <laughs> right? I have to actually do it. So let's start with a simple one, simple one that everybody agrees with. This is not painful. Ecclesiastes 4.9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. I mean, if one falls down, his friend can help him up. Pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. If two lie down together, they're going to keep warm. How can one person keep himself warm? It doesn't work like that. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Which always bothered me when I was a kid, because I'm like, it's two, 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 so three. I'm like, dude, he was, he was focused on the whole two thing, and then at the end he added a third. He's not really talking about two. He's talking about not wanting it. It's not talking about you have to two it. No, it's just not going it alone. If you fall in a hole, it's really nice if there's somebody up there, up top side, that might be able to throw you down a rope. If you're in a fight, it might be nice to have some defenders who literally can watch your back. If you want to strengthen your twine, it's really nice to be able to, to make a braid out of three cords so that you make rope. I know this. You, you know this. Everybody knows this, right? Everybody knows it's harder to tear through a phone book than a sheet of paper, right? Why did the wisest man ever lived waste so many verses on something everybody already knows? Why would he do that? If you know this and I know this, why would he do that? Because there's what you know, there's what you know goodlyishly, there's what you know what you should do with what you know, and there's when you actually do it. Because I want you to think about one of the most American of interactions is, hi, how are you doing? The answer is, fine. You could have blood spurting from an artery and you would still probably say fine i'm fine need any help no no i got it thank you i'm fine i have no clue what i'm doing i'm holding 
I'm not even sure what this tool does, but I feel manly as I'm standing by whatever it is, this part that I'm trying to fix. I'm not going to ask for any help, though. I'm not going to do any of that. I have no idea how to get through this. I have no idea how to survive what I'm facing in my life. But I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Everybody wants to be helpful, right? You want to make sure that you feel helpful. When somebody needs something, you're there for them. Yes? Oh, yeah. Everybody goes, yes. Except for the one honest person going, no. No, everybody says yes. I want to feel helpful. And if somebody goes, can I help you? You go, no, I don't want to feel like somebody who needs help. Why? Sometimes people go, oh, I don't want to be a bother. Like, really? Do you feel like you're being bothered when somebody else needs help and you help them? They're a horrible, horrible bother, right? That's what you feel like. Sometimes, sometimes you do. But most of the time you go, no, no, I was happy to help. Really? Then what makes you think that you're a bother when you need help? Maybe you just go, I, I, I don't know, I, I want to hope for the best that maybe this will all just get better. Maybe I'm terribly independent. I like doing it myself. I need to learn how to use the spanner. What's a spanner? Maybe you're just terribly prideful like the rest of humanity and you just don't want everybody to know that you might actually need help also sometimes while you bleed out. I just don't want people to know how much I'm bleeding. Why not? Think about the times in your life when you have felt tremendously alone while surrounded by people, but you didn't know how to reach out to them. You felt overwhelmed by life, but you didn't know how to ask for help. You didn't want to ask for help, but you desperately needed help, but you didn't know how to help. Think about times where you tried to muscle through things in life that can't be muscled through or hide from things in life that you cannot hide from. Think about how many times in life you said, I'm feeling very isolated, so I think I'm not going to interact with anybody else because I feel so isolated. I feel so alone during COVID, so I'm going to crawl deeper into the hole and just hope that I can emerge from this chrysalis later. Or maybe engage. Most of you have phones. Most of you have computers. Most of you have neighbors or mailboxes. You can still engage, even if you are completely at home. But sometimes we're like, yeah, but people aren't engaging with me. Sometimes we're a bit like the man in a darkened room who is terrified of the dark and feeling tremendously alone. And God says, I put a light switch on the wall. It's right there. Tell you what, I'll even bring people to the next room. And if you want them to, they can click on the light. But he's paralyzed by fear, by frustration, by being used to being alone in the dark, pride, I don't want to ask for help, I don't know. But in his paralysis, he sits in the middle of the room, alone, in the dark, terrified of the dark, wishing that somehow it wouldn't be so dark. God's like, would you like to flip on the light switch? Would you like to ask anybody in the next room? Why am I so alone? It's sad. But not only will the guy stay in the dark, odds are if that's if he stays in the dark long enough, it'll destroy him. And, and, and not only that, but it'll destroy his relationships because after a while he'll start to despise all the people in the next room in the light, right? How did they not know I was sitting here in the dark? 
behind that closed door. I can hear them laughing in the light. Don't they know I'm crying in the dark? Did you tell them? Shouldn't they open the door? Shouldn't you? And I know, I know, I know that depression is a thing. I know that it's hard. I know that even if you're not depressed, you could still be bummed and it's hard. I know that. Do you know that when you are feeling completely alone, you don't have to be? This is a very straightforward one. This is a simple one. Everybody says, yes, I know that two is stronger than one. I know that three chords are stronger than one piece of twine. I know that. And yet, is it a waste of Solomon's time to include this many verses to say, no, seriously, don't go it alone. Don't do it alone. Don't muscle through it alone. Don't do that. You go, but it's so hard to braid. I stink at braiding, by the way. Somehow I've never figured out how to do it. I don't know. It's just some mental block. I, and Megan laughed at me and said, no, surely you can. And she taught me how, and I started braiding, and she's like, you're horrible at this. I am. So I should never try to braid, and all I should ever use is thin twine, yes? I'm not saying it's always easy, but I'm saying that Solomon is not wasting his time with these verses. He's saying we need to chew on this and do this. You know it. Now do something with what you know. Or here's another one. Coming from Solomon, the very rich king, all about how you shouldn't be focused on money. And you go, yes, rich people are always saying that. It's amazing how often rich people go, money isn't everything. It's just what I light my Cuban cigars with. You're right. It's the poor people sitting there going, I think money's important. I think it's... Rich people think money is important too. But this rich guy, this super rich guy coming to the end of his life, talking about what's important, says in chapter 5, verse 10, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. It's empty. It's poof of breath. It's pointless. It's our own hollow fleeting bit of nothing. And we've talked about this so many different times. You need to be good stewards of what you have. I don't care whether it's money or talents or abilities or whatever resources. If God has gifted you with something, use that. Don't bury it. Don't waste it. Don't burn it. Take care of it so that it's neither lost nor ruined. Absolutely. Having said that, if your life becomes focused on the accumulation of more, that's the focus. More talent, more accolades, more money then ultimately you're going to live in a constant state of misery and dissatisfaction. By definition, it will always work that way because you're never, ever going to have more than you have right now. You will never have more than you have today. All that you will ever have in your life is what you have. Now, technically, there may be more of it tomorrow, but by the time you get there to enjoy it, you will not call it tomorrow. You will call it today. So if the whole point is, I want more tomorrow, my whole life is I want more tomorrow, then on any given today, you're dissatisfied, yes? If tomorrow is always your focus of getting more, then today is always less than what you want. And you will always drive yourself nuts. You'll never have enough. In a storage compartment full of grain, you're starved to death. You will never have enough. because You will never have enough to feed that desire 
to have more. If your desire is to have enough, you can have that every day. If your desire is to have more, you will never have it. It's just simple, basic logic. Wisest man that ever lived said, yeah, you can't just make it more. If the whole focus is on more, you're not ever going to get it. The, the, the sleep of the laborer, he says, as, well, let me back up. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. It's part of a system. The more food you have, the more people you'll have to eat the food. And what benefit are they to the, to the owner except to feast his eyes on him? If you go, I always want more, I always want more, and you go, well, there'll come a point where either you will have more consumers consuming it or you'll just sit there looking at your piles of stuff. How does that make you happy? Just getting more money, just changing one part of the system is not going to be enough. Just, just artificially raising minimum wage without changing the rest of the system will not work because the rest of the system will rise to meet minimum wage at which point minimum wage is no longer a minimum living wage. You can't just change one part and think that everything's going to be okay. Right? You have to say, wait a minute, I have to look at the whole system and how this all feeds together. Because he says, the sleep of a laborer is sweet. They did their work and they can sleep fine. Whether he eats little or much, they focus on what they were doing. But the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep because he's constantly worried about more. And I don't want you to... Okay, I, now that I use the example. I don't want anybody going home going, Kevin doesn't want us to raise minimum wage. It's not my point. So shouldn't... Have, knock yourself out. Raise the wage. Pay something fair. Do that. Increase. That's fine. But just wisely. In, figure out the whole system and how it works together. Don't just throw more at something and think that the moreness of it will fix everything. If you just a little more, then we'll work better. If we do that, Solomon says, you'll drive yourself nuts. You'll lay awake tonight worrying about how do you get more and why don't you have more. All this follows what Solomon's been saying for these last couple of weeks. I've been looking at Ecclesiastes. You have to find your joy in something that's not just what you get or not just even something that you get done. If you're focused so much on your joy coming from the what's around you, you are constantly going to feel unfulfilled. Because even if you have a wonderful day and your what was wonderful, can you guarantee that your what tomorrow is going to be as good? And remember, if you're focused on the high, Tomorrow's what has to be at least as good, if not better. Because if you constantly live in this state of whatness, that you go, this is really good, this becomes the status quo, right? This becomes that normal living minimum wage. Well, we need to raise that, don't we? So that tomorrow my what is bigger. And it needs to stay at this level now. And now I'll be very satisfied for, wait a minute, this is now the status quo. To be fair, I need to raise that tomorrow. If all you do is focus on more what, I don't care what the what is, it will never bring you joy. Work on the why? Why did you do what you did? That can bring genuine joy, but the what, the what will never last. And I'm not trying to say some kind of 
Money is the root of all evil nonsense. That's absolute malarkey. Anybody that tells you that money is the root of all evil is lying. I would never say that. The Bible never says that. Does it? No, the Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. What does he actually say? Paul in 1 Timothy is writing to Pastor Timothy. And he says, if, if we have food and clothing, if we have enough, we'll be content with that. Would I like more? Sure, fine, whatever. But I'm content with having enough. If I'm constantly looking for more, I will be discontented. If I'm contented with having enough, I'm fine. Everything beyond that is questing for more, which is an empty pursuit. People who want to get rich, Paul says, fall into the temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. If you're focused on the what, the what of getting more and more and more, that will drive you nuts. Because listen to what he actually says. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money's a tool. But the lust for it, the lust for more of it, I have to have more. The greed is the problem. I can have greed for love, can't I? I'm so desperate for love. Couldn't you make an argument that Solomon made the worst mistakes of his life because he was so desperate to feel loved? The love of the lust for it, the greed for more is what is the problem. So Paul says some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves, pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this because I want to do a course correction. Pastor Timothy, I want you to come to wisdom. I want you to have that kind of objectivity, that kind of stability that keeps your life moving in a way that honors God. It just echoes what Solomon was saying. The wisest man that had ever lived, the most opulent living king in the history of Israel, said chasing after getting more money is itself just chasing after the wind. It's meaningless. It's a puff of breath. I'm telling you, even if I'm rolling in, in gold coins like a dragon in a Tolkien book, comes a point where that doesn't make me happy it doesn't bring me joy if there's ever more gold out there i want more and if my whole life has been about more and i now have all the gold my life is completely empty think about the irony of that if you got absolutely every gold coin in the world because your whole point was to get more gold coins and you got the very last gold coin then the rest of your life is literally by definition Pointless. Yes? Logic, wisdom, the why should make you stop and say, this is by definition fruitless. I need to find something else. I need to find a different focus. And I know that elsewhere, chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon said that money is itself a shelter. He's not dissing money. We need to appreciate that it is itself just a tool. And we need to make sure that we put our trust, put our appreciation, put our confidence in a much better bank, a much deeper, richer place where the gold and the silver don't rust, tarnish, where where the thief can't steal, where moth can't eat it. Don't we? 
We need to have a deeper, richer why than just this place under the sun. I'm going to cheat and I'm going to quote Isaiah. I know, I know. We're technically been quoting Solomon, but Isaiah does a good job of synopsizing this. In Isaiah 49, Isaiah said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength for nothing. For, poof, same word, for a puff of breath. I have been working and working and ain't nobody listening. (laughs) It's very frustrating to be a prophet, Lord. It's this hollow, fleeting bit of nothing. Yet, what is due me is in Yahweh's hand. And my reward is with my God. Under the sun, everything I've done is pointless. Under the sun, my reward is nothing. And yet, what I do here stays here. And let's be honest, half of what I do, half, two-thirds, three-quarters of what I do here doesn't even work here, right? But even the stuff that I do here that works here doesn't stay fixed. Sometimes I would just like the world to stay fixed for a while, right? It won't, Solomon says. It never will. Everything you do here stays here, even the stuff that actually works. But what I do for eternity lasts for eternity. What I do to show God's glory glorifies God for eternity. What I invest in for paradise lasts through paradise. That lasts forever. The greatest temple ever built doesn't exist anymore under the sun. But why I push a broom, why I did that, lasts for eternity. Stop and think. Trust that Yahweh's wisdom to compensate is better than anything under the sun. Actually, maybe it is a good time. Let me, let me come, jump to, to what Solomon was saying and put it in context that whole money is a shelter thing. In Ecclesiastes 7, 9, he says, Don't be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. For those of you who go, I just get so angry! Which is, by the way, the entirety of the, <laughs> the United States of America and most of the world, most of the time, and everybody on Facebook at one point or another. And everybody on Twitter. Point is, he says, don't be so quickly provoked in your spirit. Anger resides in the lap of fools. Not just foolish words, because he says, yeah, fool keeps talking, and the fool multiplies his words. He starts with foolishness, and then it just descends into madness. It just keeps getting wonkier and wonkier, and then he keeps adding more and more words, thinking this will add more and more wisdom. And you go, you went from, man, you're so wrong, to what? Again, refer back to either extreme over the last two years on any socio-political axis. At any given point, I think I disagree with you, turns into, y'all nuts, right? You say about the people on the other side of the axis. Yes? Anyway, he says, don't do that. Don't just jump to being offended. Don't, Don't look for quick fault and easy condemnation for complex issues. Don't do that. Don't say, why were the old days better than these? That's not wise to ask such questions. Why? Well, for one thing, because it finds quick fault and easy condemnation for complex questions, right? 
Why is it all so much better? It wasn't. Some of it was better and some of it wasn't. Oh, I wish I could have lived in the 1890s where people dressed cool. Yes, they did. And they did... No, that's not... I I would have liked the starch collar, the nice vest. I would have looked much better in like 1892. And yet, my wife wouldn't have done so well being an epileptic uh, in 1892. I kind of like the internet two-thirds of the time. And I like having it. And let's be honest, I like my car. I like being able to do that. I like being able to call people. That's nice. I really People keep asking, would you have loved to live in the Renaissance? I'm like, oh, I would have loved to have talked to Da Vinci. <laughs> and it would have smelled so bad. <laughs> the Renaissance was a horrible time. Just a horrible time. Why? 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 Why are the good old days? Why are they good? And why is it so much better than today? Solomon also seems to go to someplace a little deeper here because it's not just, well, it's a a quick and easy thing to something complicated. But he's like, that defeats the whole purpose of understanding wisdom in in the first place. To be overly nostalgic. I mean, you can appreciate things when you're a kid, but to be overly nostalgic about the past and to groan about the present is to assume that there was something about that time period that was inherently better that there was something that that the what's of that were so much better than the what's that we have now. As if somehow the thing in and of itself, 1975, 1932, 1863, were inherently, that time was inherently better. The thing itself was better. We had it good. We had a good thing going. And now we don't have that thing now, that that culture or that work ethic or that economy or that fill-in-the-blank. And if we could just get that what back, then we could have joy, right? Okay, if we could just get more of that what back, then we could have more joy, at least. Isn't that technically the same problem again? We might sit there and go, yes, I feel very spiritual about saying, if I, I shouldn't say if I could just get more money, then I would be more happy. But I do think if we could get more of 1953, we would be more happy. Like, well, no. If we could get more of 2019, before COVID hit, the world was so much sweeter and gentler in 2019. Terrifyingly in some ways, yes. You time travel to 2019, you'd walk in going, how many memes are online about, can we please just get through 2019? This this year is a train wreck. It's always messed up. And I don't ever want to get to a point where I'm mooring again, where I'm saying if I could just get more of that extrinsic thing, I would be more intrinsically happy. It doesn't work like that. The whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes is you can't yab it yourself into. Yeah, but if we did have more of this. if I, Yeah, but if I could just get a little bit more free time. Yeah, but if I could just get a little bit more money, it would work. Yeah, but if we could just get more church buildings on more street corners, then the world would be better. I can yab it about what's all day, but until we change the why, it won't help anything. I want us to focus on the why behind the what. I want us to focus on the wisdom and then on actually doing the wisdom of God. 
What actually honors him? Because Solomon continues, he says, wisdom like an inheritance is a good thing and it benefits those who see the sun here in this place, under the sun. Wisdom is thus a shelter, just like money is a shelter. They're both good, honest and true, good tools, good things to put your shelter and your confidence in. That's great. Now the advantage of knowledge is this. Let me say this, he says. Wisdom as opposed to money, actually, you know, keeps you alive. Which is good, I think. Because money in and of itself never kept anybody alive. It's the proper application of it. If you go, no, I think money could keep me alive. Really? If you're starving, eat the nickels in your pocket. Good luck. Money itself is not keeping you alive. What do you do with it? You can be a rich idiot and starve. You can be a poor man and wisely Use your money and your resources so that you and your family survives. There's a reason why even grade school teachers can afford to retire and why there are NBA players that go bankrupt. It ain't the number of dollars in the bank account. It's the wisdom. It's the why behind their what that matters. Stop and think about this. Or as Solomon said in Proverbs 16, how much better it is to get wisdom than gold to choose understanding rather than silver. Or in the next chapter he says, of what use is money in the hand of a fool since he has no desire to get wisdom. So here's a thought. Some of us never focus on our legacy, but those of us that do oftentimes are thinking about, I need to make sure that my children's inheritance is solid. I need to make sure that uh, my 401ks, my CDs, and I have an investment portfolio. And that's good. That is good. That's really good. Solomon says, by the way, technically, wisdom is so much more important than money. How much time do we spend making sure that we have an investment portfolio of wisdom that we're handing as an inheritance to our children? That instead of saying, it was so much better when I was your age, or even kids your age don't understand, what if instead of saying, ah, focus on the past, here, let me give you money, what if instead we say, you know, just like people poured wisdom into me, I want to pour wisdom into you because I want you to carry wisdom to the next generation. I want you to see this as crucial. I want you to see this as important. This is my legacy. This is my inheritance. The wisdom that will last forever instead of the money that you'll waste on a bad investment sometime. Why were the good old days better than this? Assumes that there's something about the future or about the present worth bemoaning instead of investing something that actually does make them better. Not just throwing more at it, but investing a why behind it. Another really wise man later preached to a flock, no one can serve two masters. Either he's going to hate the one and love the other, or he's going to be devoted to the one and despise the other, but you can't serve both God and money. You can have God in your life and serve money. You can have money in your life and serve God. You cannot serve God and serve money. you got to pick one to ascribe real worth to, because that's what worship is, right? Ascribing worth. You've got to pick one to ascribe that worth to in your life and to trust as your master. And the other one can be a tool to help you serve your master, but you have to pick one. 
You can say, money is the thing that makes things go around. Dear God, please give me some more money. God serves your master. Or you can say, Lord, you are my God. Tell me what I can do with this resource to honor you. Your money serves your master. Of course, I should, like I said before, say I'm not really talking about money. I'm talking about anything in your life. Is there anything in your life that you ascribe the real worth to your life to? The, the wise person will say, I want to choose that based on what lasts forever. Because Jesus says, you know, who of you can, by worrying, is going to add one single hour to his life? Does that help? Does, does worry ever help? Does fretting ever help? Does stress ever help? Planning helps. Does worry. And why do you worry about clothes? See the, how the lilies of the field grow. They don't labor. They don't spin. And yet I tell you, what? I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. Solomon, who had more money than everybody, pales beside a flower that grows by the roadside. Your heavenly Father knows that you need stuff, Jesus says. I got that. Under the sun, God knows that in this place you need stuff, food, clothing, shelter. But seek first his kingdom, Christ says, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Start with God, end with God, walk with God in between. Focus your why on wisdom. And the what's of life tend to fall into place if your why is right. But either way, you can trust that God knows what he's doing. As Solomon ends his book, and we cheated that first week by jumping to the end, but as Solomon ends his book, he says in Ecclesiastes 12, now all has been heard, and here's the conclusion of the matter. Now that I've, I've done all these arguments to tear things down, all these conscious disillusioning, and all this course correcting to say, I, I want to make sure we're doing this right. After I've, I've removed all the possible yabbiting, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Have a healthy, life-changing appreciation for just how awesome, how much bigger, better, more intensely wiser God is. Continuously, consciously develop the realization that you should actually be running to God because you can't ever hide from him. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Do you, do you, do you believe that? If you actually believe that, you kind of want to make sure that your deeds are, are, are good rather than evil, right? kind of want to make sure that you're, you're not hiding anything. And if, you, if there is anything in there, it's, 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 it's healthy, it's wise rather than foolish. It kind of suggests that you should really stop and remind yourself that the why is important. Root yourself in what's going to last forever rather than in this shadow play that we all just assume is the most real thing. I, I just shared in, in, in Marty's uh, funeral this week, I just shared, remind yourself that as human beings, we are not animals who happen to have a soul. We are souls who happen to be wrapped in flesh. You will continue on for eternity, for good or for evil, for good or for bad, pleasantly or unpleasantly. You Everything you are continues on forever. I think that's important. And the whys for which you lived 
will last so much longer than the what's of this place. So much longer than this place. Aren't we told that the, that the planet itself will someday just go... Scripturally, we're told God goes... Any good secular scientist will go, someday it will go... No matter how you want to say it, this does, it doesn't last forever. The sun will eventually burn itself out. You will go on forever. When the people of God live in, 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 in eternity on a, on a cleansed and redeemed earth, in Revelation 22, we're told that they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. You will outlive the sun. Why live your life as if everything matters under the sun? As if everything we do here, the what's are so crucially important. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for eating when I'm hungry and sleeping when I'm sleepy. I get it. What's are important. But the why. A God-honoring why lasts forever. It outlasts the sun you toil under. Let that perspective change the way you drive in traffic today. Let that perspective change the way you interact with the clerk at the grocery store. Let that perspective change the way you interact with somebody at work. Let that perspective change the way you work on paying taxes or how you interact with those idiots who have the audacity to believe something differently than you do. What's are important? They pale behind the whys that last forever. So honor God. Let that be your why in all your what's. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray, open our eyes every day to look for people sitting alone in the dark. Open our eyes every day to look for the people who are near the light switch and can help us. Open our eyes every day to look for the opportunities you give us just to push a broom for your glory. Open our eyes every day to look for the times where we might be focused on the wrong what or with the wrong why. Open our eyes. Let us be led by your spirit so that in everything we can try to consciously be an ambassador of a place so much better than this place, so much richer. Help us today to be an ambassador for eternity and help us to keep doing that forever. We give this to you and pray. Help us to live lives of consequence because we live lives that honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.